0: From the heart of the NIPTY radio recording studios, high above 107 Columbia Street in the heart of uptown, downtown Albany, with both eyes on Eagle Street. Welcome to this week's edition of the NIPTY Practice Tips. <music> johnny and welcome everyone to this edition of the nifty practice tips coming to you from a very snowy and cold albany new york today we're going to be discussing batson issues so let's get started the right of a citizen to serve on a trial jury is a civil right that is memorialized in both new york state and the federal constitutions both the people in the defense may violate the right of a prospective juror to sit in New York, the right is found in the New York State Constitution, Article 1, Sections 1 and 11, and protected in the Civil Rights Law, Section 13. The parties to a criminal trial are given the unlimited right to challenge prospective jurors who are unqualified, known as challenges for cause. They are also given a limited number of peremptory challenges, which affords each side the opportunity to generalize about the potential biases of prospective jurors And strike those who they believe will be unfavorable to their position at trial. See Holland v. Illinois. However, the exercise of peremptory challenges is not boundless. The right to serve on juries is scrupulously honored by the courts as demonstrated by the holding in Batson v. Kentucky and its progeny. In Batson, the United States Supreme Court wrote that the Equal Protection Clause forbids prosecutors to challenge potential jurors solely on account of their race. Following the original Batson decision, the Equal Protection Clause of both our state constitution as well as the U.S. Constitution have been interpreted to prohibit both the people and the defense from exercising peremptory challenges in a racially discriminatory manner, see People v. Luciano and People v. Kern, both New York State Court of Appeals decisions. The holding in Batson was subsequently interpreted to apply to gender, see People v. Beretta, N.J.E.B. JEB v. Alabama ex a U.S. Supreme Court decision, where the court wrote, gender like race is an unconstitutional proxy for juror competence and impartiality. However, young persons are not considered a cognizable group. Whenever the defense makes a Batson motion, or the people make a reverse Batson motion claiming That the opposing party is exercising his or her peremptory challenges in a discriminatory fashion to exclude a protected class of individuals. The trial court must follow the following procedures. They are commonly referred to as the Batson three-step test. In the first step, the moving party bears the burden of establishing a prima facie case of discrimination by the other party in the exercise of his or her peremptory challenges. If this burden is met, The court moves to the second step. Here, the non moving party must give a protected class neutral reason for the use of each of the jurors challenged. The third step the burden shifts back to the moving party to demonstrate purposeful discrimination, and the court determines whether the reason or reasons given are merely a pretext for discrimination. In People v. Hecker, a Court of Appeals decision from 2010, the New York courts recapped the required three-step procedure formulated in Batson. Now, in dealing with step one, the New York Court of Appeals has held that identifying the cognizable group is not a heavy or difficult burden and is seldom problematic. See, for example, People v. Childress, a New York Court of Appeals decision from 1993. The more difficult burden for the moving party is identifying the required facts and other relevant circumstances that support the inference of discrimination. While the situation may arise that a challenge is appropriate only after one person has been stricken with a peremptory challenge, see, for example, People v. Bowling, a Court of Appeals decision, the mere number of challenges used on a protected class will rarely be determinative that there is a Batson violation. See People v. Brown, a court of appeals decision from 2002. The court wrote, a disproportionate number of strikes used against members of a particular racial or ethnic group may be indicative of a discriminatory pattern, but such a fact is rarely conclusive in the absence of other facts or circumstances. The moving party will meet its initial burden when we deal with step one to establish a prima facie showing of discrimination when the totality of the relevant facts give rise to an inference of discriminatory purpose. That's a quote from Batson. Now, here are some examples of factors that can assist in establishing the prima facie showing of discrimination. Number one, when the defense claims there is discrimination by the people, If the defendant is a member of the protected group that the people are challenging from the jury. Another example, when prospective jurors in the cognizable group are excluded, while other people with similar characteristics, but are not members of that group, are not challenged. Still another example, when people who are members of the cognizable group, who would otherwise appear to be favorable to the striking party, but are challenged by that party a pattern of strikes or questions and statements made during the voir dire may be sufficient in a particular case. This is a quote from the Childress decision. If the court determines a prima facie showing is made, the court moves to step two. If there is no finding of a prima facie showing of discrimination, the procedures cease. However, if the party accused of the impropriety places his or her neutral reasons for the exercise of the allegedly improper challenges on the record, the sufficiency of the first step becomes a moot issue for appeal and the evaluation of the proffered reasons will be the focus of any subsequent appellate review. Consider, however, this very practical point. While you are not required to state your reasons on the record if step one is not met by the defense, Often, it will serve the best interests of your case as well as your appeals bureau to place your race protected class neutral reasons on the record. If an appellate court determines that the prima facie case was in fact established by the defense and the trial court should have moved two step two procedures, but none was conducted at your trial, the case will be remanded for a hearing to determine if your reasons for the exercise of the peremptory challenges was proper. Such hearings are often difficult to conduct years after the verdict was returned. This point in mind, if you do not place on the record at the time of the Batson challenge, your reasons for the exclusion of those jurors, you should be sure to keep a complete written record of all the reasons for the exercising of your peremptory challenges and keep copies both in your personal files as well as in the case file. This is especially significant in factual situations like the ones discussed above, where no reasons were placed on the record at the time of the initial challenge. And the great deference given to the trial judge is not unlimited. When the court moves to step three, it must then determine if the proffered reasons are pretextual or not. The burden shifts back to the moving party to establish that the proffered protected class neutral reasons are pretextual. The court must give the challenging party the opportunity to argue why the proffered reasons are pretextual and not simply deny the motion after hearing the neutral reasons. If, on the other hand, the court believes the reasons are pretextual, even before the moving party makes its argument, the court still must make a thorough record as to its reasons for granting the motion and, in fact, must be sure that the record reflects that the moving party has, in fact, met its burden. In the case of People v. Slocum, Court of appeals decision from 1993 the court wrote the third step of the batson inquiry requires the trial court to make an ultimate determination on the issue of discriminatory intent based on all of the facts and circumstances presented unlike step two this determination is a question of fact focused on the credibility of the race neutral reasons courts may determine that the proffered reasons are pretextual without further argument by the moving party but the moving party has the ultimate burden of persuading the court that the reasons are merely a pretext for intentional discrimination. It is therefore the moving party's burden to make a record that would support a finding of pretext. When courts combine steps two and three by requiring the non-moving party to provide the non-pretextual race neutral reasons, they inappropriately shift the ultimate burden from the moving party. The appellate courts take the requirement that the trial courts go to step three after step two is finished very seriously. If the people are moving party and the court finds you have met your step one obligation in challenging the defendant's use of peremptory challenges, you must be sure that the court does not stop at step two and grant your motion before going to step three, even if the defense's proffered reasons are facially foolish. The burden shifts back to you as the original moving party once the defense presents protected class neutral reasons. You must establish in step 3 that the reasons proffered by the defense are pretextual. The record must reflect your step 3 arguments and the court's considered decision including the identification of the nonverbal conduct exhibited by attorneys or jurors that the court factored into its making of his or her decision. This last point is very significant in many of Batson cases. If the defense is the challenging party and the court determines your proffered neutral explanations are clear and obviously not pretextual and fails to move to step three and does not give the defense an opportunity to argue why those explanations were pretextual, the trial courts have committed error, which can require a remand for further proceedings or even an outright reversal, as in the case of People v. Claudio, a first department case from 2004. In the Claudio case, The trial court, in a sense, cut the baby in half to fairly resolve the issue for both sides by seating one of the challenged jurors without making a determination as to the credibility of the prosecutor's explanation. In effect, the court impermissibly merged steps two and three together. However, the Batson procedure effectuates its purpose only if the steps are followed in sequence. To compound the error, the court then went on to seat one challenged juror, but not the other two that were challenged without making any factual findings for its decision. This apparent arbitrary procedure was clearly outside the Batson protocol and affords no basis upon which for the court to make a determination on appeal. Now, normally this case would be remanded for further findings, but in this particular case, the court noted such a remand is not practical here. The justice who presided over the voir dire is no longer on the bench and it's over 11 years since the trial of its matter. Accordingly, the matter is remanded for a new trial. This obviously 11 years later would be a great difficulty for the people. So it is imperative that each one of these steps be followed according to the rules stated here. Please be sure to see the written version of today's Nipty practice tip, which has the case sites for all of the cases, as well as some additional case citations. Our thanks as always to our announcer, Johnny, and to our crack producer and winter skier extraordinaire, Jonathan Marconi Crispino, who has in fact been skiing off the roof of 107 Columbia, because we are now sitting here with two feet of snow on the ground in Albany. To all of you out there, be well, be safe, and stay ready, my friends.